Hi, this is Elizabeth Bailey, and you're listening to the Citizens Podcast from Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama. So over the centuries, there has been a variety of Christian responses to materialism. Take a look at these. There's frugality. Just spend less, and you'll have less. That's one solution. There's asceticism. Just deny yourself and have nearly nothing. And then there's our favorite, and it's on social media pretty intensely, minimalism. Have less and tell everyone about how you have less. That's one solution. And all these have both positives and negatives. All these have some merit to them, but they all miss the heart and practice of Christian simplicity. And I want to recognize that most of us grew up in a church where you probably never talked about Christian simplicity ever, that this is a foreign concept. This is maybe even a weird idea, but the goal of simplicity isn't to make you Amish. I'm not taking us and buying land way out in the country and starting a new lifestyle for us of simple clothes and, and strange practices. That's not us. But Christian simplicity is trying to give you a superior focus on something greater that simplifies everything else in your life. And we are called to the discipline of simplicity through a command of God and also a promise of God. And here's the command in verse 34. Jesus ends this long talk. He's talking through the Sermon on the Mount and he hits this kind of zenith of things and he says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. When you wake up in the morning, know what you're supposed to do if you're following Jesus. It's seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So the discipline of simplicity comes from this superior focus that the kingdom of God and the righteousness, the character of God must matter the most. It matters so much that there's no room for anything to compare with him. There's no room to compare and contrast while I could follow the Lord or do this. No, it is the Lord must be first. The same message of Haggai is the same message of Jesus right here saying, seek first the kingdom. And the kingdom of God means the rule, like a king's rule, in the reign, the power of a king, the rule and reign of God in our lives both in his presence with us and his purpose in your life. He's saying, seek first following me. Seek first in life in the kingdom. Life in the kingdom starts at salvation. When you trust Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, King Jesus becomes Lord of your life. And the life you live with Jesus is life in the kingdom. That's what the kingdom of God means. It's Matthew's shorthand for the word gospel. It's saying life with Jesus, the gospel is this, that we would seek first his kingdom and then his righteousness, all the justice of God, all the holiness of God, all the love of God, all the mercy of God, all the goodness of God. We would seek that above all things. And what this does is it radically simplifies our life and decision-making because everything else must fall under that. 
If we put this as the absolute first, suddenly what do we do about dating? What do we do about a situation at work? What do we do about that neighbor who annoys us or that neighbor who, who we love? What do we do in all these situations? What do we do with our mother-in-law? What do we do with, with our son? What do we do with these things? It suddenly becomes, we must seek first the kingdom of God in this situation and his character to be lived out in our lives. Now, it may be complex how to handle those things, but it's not complicated our decision because we simplify to say, well, the Lord matters first. So that's where we're going. But it gets even better because when we seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, we have a promise from God that the discipline of simplicity has this promise that God cares for you. Look at the, verse, the rest of verse 34. The promise says, if you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then all these things will be added unto you. All the things the passage talked about, all the cares of life, all the competing things that could compete for your worry, compete for your anxiety, compete for your care, compete for your security, compete for your comfort. All these things will be added to you if you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So we're not told to go do this hard thing in following Jesus alone. Instead, we're given a promise from God that if we follow and seek Jesus first, that he, God himself, will care for our every need. But this is a difficult thing to accept. Even now, you're probably like, "Uh, okay, maybe. Because to accept this, that God cares for you and provides for you, you have to loosen control over your actual life, or at least your perceived control over your life. You can't trust God and clench all these things this tightly. There is no way to seek first the kingdom of God, to live that simple life and clutch all the food and clothing and and shelter and what will we drink and eat and try to do both. He's saying, if you let go of these, you can follow me. And in following me, I will provide for you. But it's tough to let go of our perceived control. And it's so difficult that I want to let Jesus be your pastor here because he takes time to detail what this means. Look at verse 24. He breaks it down. This is what it looks like to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on, is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing. With the simplicity of trusting God, we can let the small stuff be small. Wouldn't it be nice that all of the time and worry energy of your life you could let go of? and make some real time for spiritual disciplines like prayer and word and actually rest? Does anyone ever say, hey, I'm going to lay down to rest or for a nap, but you end up worrying yourself until you pick yourself back up and start pacing your bedroom? It's just me. What if the worry energy in your life was something of the past and was replaced with time with God? What of the mental energy you thinking of, think of every possibility of every outcome, of every conversation, of every meeting with your boss at work, of every next phone call, of every next calendar appointment. Instead of all the worry energy, you could just put it on the calendar or go into the meeting, fully praying and saying, God, I absolutely trust you with what happens next. We're going to do my best. We're going to leave it at that. That is a wildly different way to live 
than the way we've probably seen from our parents, seen from everyone in our life, seen from our friends. But it is the way to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Trusting God doesn't mean that we're just careless. Instead, it's embracing that God has promised to care for us. Trusting God is not a posture of giving up or having a carefree personality. It's choosing to rest in God's care. And it's Jesus, pastor, you saying that if you will follow Jesus, you're now in Jesus's family. And these items aren't worth fretting over, yet seeking the kingdom of God is something to focus on. You're part of Jesus's family and he's a good father. How weird would it be if I invite you over to my house and you come over to my house, I go, hey, over there in the corner, that's Eloise. She's uh, turning six. That's Tyler turning three. Um, yeah, you see my kids? And you look at my kids and they're over there muttering to each other. You think the water supply is going to hold tomorrow, Eloise? I don't know, Tyler. You think we're going to have clothes tomorrow? I don't know. Boy, am I hungry. You would call social surfaces. That would be so weird of what's going on in my home, that my kids had a deep food and water and clothing insecurity, that they felt the weight of the world to go figure out for themselves when I'm standing able-bodied right there. That would be weird. But as Christians, that's how we live. We tell the whole world we have a heavenly father. Praise him to the highest. He is God. There is no other God. And then we run around our life muttering in the corner of how anxious or worried or we can't sleep or we don't know what's going to happen all the time. And yeah, parts of life are hard. Some of y'all have dealt with real hunger struggles. Some of y'all have dealt with some real problems. But it doesn't mean that we have to submit to the worst day of our life that we can trust God with our future and trust God with our now. What it looks like, we don't go into the corner and murmur. But instead of trusting God for adults, it looks like this. When we get the Sunday scaries and overwhelm us again, instead of engaging it with God, we just put on the Netflix and black out for hours and hours and don't sleep well. We find ourselves we can't stop talking or lying or exaggerating or obsessing about work or home or budgets or hobbies instead of just engaging how out of control life can feel. When we start to live and die on the news cycles of outrage culture, just feeding into what they want, gluing your eyeballs to a screen to get advertising dollars, we do that rather than engage in anxiety that lives in our own hearts. Our murmuring in the corner is getting so worked up and worry we can't sleep. And we look like a people who say they have a heavenly father, yet live like a, that father either doesn't care, he doesn't exist, or he's not powerful enough to help me. And instead of feeling a drowning amount of shame or guilt on how you live your life today, I would rather you see today as an invitation. It's a life raft of grace, an invitation from God himself to say, church, you could live simply. And simple starts with seeking first the kingdom of God and my righteousness and trusting that all these things will be added unto you. 
This is the invitation that lays before us that says we can be simple because God does exist. God is powerful and he does care for us. Look at how God takes care of the things that matter way less than us. And when you see this in the Bible, he uses it all the time. He goes from the lesser to the greater. He shows you something small to teach you about something big. Look at this. Look at the birds of the air, the millions, billions of birds floating around us all the time. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into bones yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you, not, are you not of more value than they? If God cares for little birds, then what about you, precious people made in God's very image? Of course he cares for you. Or maybe the problem is we don't see our littleness. We don't see our actual kinship with those birds. Verse 27, And which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his lifespan. If we can't add an hour to our life, no matter how many creams we rub on our face, no matter how much we save in a 401k, no matter how great the job, the benefits, no matter how great the car, the house, or the neighborhood, if we can't add a single hour, then maybe we are little too, like a bird before God. Part of letting go of our anxious grip on things is realizing we're not God, we're actually pretty small, and yes, we will die one day like everybody else. I have a weird tendency is I love to stroll graveyards. I've done it my whole life. I really like it because when you're in graveyards, you just realize if I'm lucky, I might have a nice headstone like that, that there's just an end coming. And it's okay to accept and think about that. The book of Ecclesiastes teaches us so much that it's okay to start to get comfortable that while death is the enemy, it's still coming. And we will rise from the dead, that we have a hope beyond the grave. But I want to use my life wisely because the days, as Ephesians tells us, are quite evil. We have a tendency to make two big different mistakes with God. We either think God is tiny, like a puny God who's mostly our friend that encourages us to do better and pick us up, but he's mostly powerful. That's one error of God. Kind of, it's like the friendly neighborhood Jesus. Take him or leave him. He's just here to help a little bit. Or we have the God of deism, this God who's big and powerful and made the world, but made it like a clock and then just stepped away unconcerned with how the affairs of humanity happen. And neither are really worth praying to, neither are worth trusting, and neither are worth obeying. Why? Because tiny God is more like a good luck charm and can't do anything. And deism God, he's powerful, but he doesn't care about you or love you. But the God of the Bible isn't tiny. He's gigantic. He gets bigger with every book of the Bible. It's like, whoa, he is unstoppable. He is free. There's none like him. And our God, he's not the God of deism. Not at all. Listen to the words of Jesus about his true care, his true attention, and the true power of God to you. Verse 28, it says, And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, Maybe the richest man to ever live from the Old Testament in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. This guy didn't even look as good as a flower and God made flower after flower after flower after flower all across the globe. 
But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow thrown into the oven, they used it to warm their houses in this day. He will not, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. The message of Jesus isn't, hey guys, don't be materialistic. It isn't, hey guys, let's be frugal. Let's all just become monks. Nor is it just, hey, just worry less. Just stop it. Just stop. That's not the message. The message is, hey, God knows your needs and he actually cares about you and he actually has the power to pull it off. I don't have the power to pull most of the things I want to do off. Yes, I want global hunger to stop. I can't stop it. But God actually has the power to do anything, the care to want to do that thing and the knowledge of what we need. Our God is a trustworthy God and he proves it the most. That he's not a tiny God. He's not the God of deism by his son, Jesus Christ that came and lived a perfect life for us, knows that we cannot live a sinless life, died a death for us to forgive our sins on the cross, a brutal death, and rose from the dead as the resurrected king that for whoever trusts in him will live forever, that they need not fear the grave nor fear for their life today. We're very comfortable saying eternity is now fixed and set for me. Thank you, God. And then we say, now I'm gonna go back to being very worried about tomorrow. If we are people who believes the Lord has saved us from beginning to end, we can live a simple life of trust in our Lord today. Jesus is the keenest observer of all humans of all time. And he noticed how we scramble all day seeking these things like food and clothing and shelter, like our life depends on it. And Jesus is telling us to look up at a God who will care for us. How will God care for us? Well, it's often through the means of work he's provided you and your family. It's through dependence on family relationships. It's dependence on community, especially a church community that follows Jesus too. But all those things are still the orchestration of God. It's not, I did all this stuff. Where were you, God? It's God made you. There's oxygen on earth because God wanted there to be. There's nothing you have that does not come from the very hand of God. That's why the sparrows don't worry. They just eat as we should. God longs to provide for you, longs for you to be simple, which brings us back to God's command and promise, which makes the discipline of simplicity possible. Verse 34, it says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. This simplicity of faith results in a simplicity of life. And I want to make this real practical for us. I want us to apply it real deep. So we're going to look at three things that Jesus talks about in this kind of wider passage of how to have simple words, simple possessions, and simple presence. Look at Matthew 5.37 with me for simple words. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Now, Jesus is talking about taking oaths here. People commonly would say, 
hey, believe me, I swear on the temple's gold or something like that to try to gain credibility from an external source instead of rely on their own credibility with the person. And Jesus is saying, don't take oaths like that. Instead, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Your life will have credibility or it won't. And some of us hold our lives too tightly and we need to say more yeses more risk to the things that would seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Others of us, probably a little bit more the majority of this room, need to learn to say no, to say embrace your limits as a person and a human. And as if you, everything you say no to, it actually gives you the opportunity to go say yes to that thing that matters most. And what matters most? What's matter, what matters most, fam? The kingdom of God and his righteousness. A lot of times we don't obey following Jesus because we've said yes to the wrong things. Or we've said we failed to say no, however you want to put it. But what if we were a people that could continually say yes to what matters most and would be a people when you interact with them, you know where they stand. They're a yes or a no. They say what they mean and they mean what they say. You want to build friendships? You want to build trust with your neighbors, people at work, people, uh, a dating relationship? Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Nothing like a lie to burn down a bridge in 10 seconds. When it comes to dating life, you could do this in two clear steps. First, if you're asking someone on the date, tell them it's a date. Say, I want to take you on a date for lunch or dinner or coffee. That's just clear yes communication with a big question mark at the end. And here, here's a little, little quick tip. It took Elena like three dates to like me. So ladies, give that guy a chance. As long as he's not a creeper, give him a chance. Men, go on a couple great dates. And when it's time, give a clear yes or no. There's no ghosting. There's no over-spiritualizing the no. Just clear yes clear no, and I believe the Lord will bless you in your yeses and nos and dating. And I know it's hard out there, but we could be a people of great integrity if we meant what we said and we said what we meant, full of yeses and nos. In other situations, someone might ask you for a big commitment and you don't know how to respond. It's okay to pull back. It's okay to ask for some time to think and pray and come back with a decision, but don't take too long on what is a minor decision. You don't need to over-spiritualize something that's a clear no for you. My family worked in the car business, had some car salesmen in my family, and there's a joke among car salesmen. We even talked about it the other day with the guy. And he says, yeah, everyone who looks at all the cars on the lot gets down to offer and then goes, hmm, I got to go pray about it. We know he ain't coming back. That's just a cowardly way to say no. So let's not over-spiritualize. Let's be a person of credibility in the workplace. When, when Hannah says yes, it means yes. When it says no, it means no. When Ben Bailey tells you a yes at work, you can trust it. If he tells you a no at work, he means it too. We build credibility of simplicity by giving our yes and our no and asking ourselves. Just think about this. What if you asked yourself this? According to God's kingdom and righteousness, should this be a yes or no for me? When people have asked me, like, hey, should I watch this TV show or this TV show or this TV show? I don't know all these TV shows. I don't know your life and all the situation and factors. But read that question and then just go with that. 
Yes or no? Is this good for the kingdom of God and his righteousness in your life? What about simple possessions? Look at Matthew 19, 19, 21 right here with me. 6, 19, 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also a favorite verse of mine. And once I was looking for a house to buy and it was an elderly man's home and I was walking around the home. I got to see the garage and it had an endless amount of toys. There was a Porsche. There were several motorcycles. There was this woodworking shop. There was scuba gear. There was wakeboards. There was an ATV. It had all the things that kind of anyone could ever want in the toy department, at least for a a dude that's thinking, man, that that looks really cool. There was only one big problem. It was buried under about a half inch of dust, covered in rust, and hadn't been used in at least a decade plus. Not only can you not take all the toys of life to heaven, they'll probably rot here on earth. There's a moment to saying we can live simply by having what we need, using what we have, and sharing generously with others, knowing nothing we have is truly ours. I'm just a steward of all the money that ever comes into my bank account, and I'm just a steward of whatever I buy with whatever money that I've spent it on in my life. Do you need it? Can you share it? Do you use it? And you can clean out your life of what is good for you and good for others. Christians are not called to asceticism, which is having nothing in order to suffer. There's no virtue in choosing that. Nor materialism, having things in an attempt to be happy. Christian simplicity is the only way to have possessions in their proper place as just things. They're just things. It's okay to use them. It's okay to have them. And we should generously share them, but they're just things. And they're as useful as they are to seek the first, the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Some of us are called and we're thinking, okay, seek first the kingdom of God's righteousness. I better sell it all and give it all away to missions. And that may be true for your life. I don't want to back off that. That happens to the rich young ruler. God can do that. But a lot of seeking first the kingdom of God looks a lot like this in scripture. The kingdom of God is taking care of our family. 1 Timothy 5.8. The kingdom of God is helping your neighbor and sharing your goods in your life. That's 1 Timothy 6.17-19. The kingdom of God is using your things to cultivate community, deep friendship, starting with your local church. That's Galatians 6, 9 and 10. The kingdom of God is obeying governing authorities above you, like paying taxes and paying people for their work. That's Romans 13. And then the kingdom of God is giving heartily to, to the church, to the poor, to missions, and all those things. And we should do that last part with just a huge joy that God's provided us abundance to take care of all of our personal responsibilities with our money and possessions. And now we can celebrate by giving even more to the kingdom and power and mission of God in the world. That's what it looks like to have a simple possessions that we take care of the concentric circles and then we can give over and beyond in our life. And that's the joy of the thing. We usually rush to big giving externally with leaving the integrity of a simple life behind. Our simple life will give us the ability to give very generously to a whole host of things. And that's how it works. What about a simple presence? The hardest of them all. Matthew 6.34, the end of our passage. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious about itself. Sufficient for the day is its own 
trouble. The gift of di- the gift of the discipline of simplicity is God is only calling you to focus on the now with him. With eternity secured, you actually can be more present in the now than ever. You can submit your future to him. You can remember God's faithfulness in your past. But think of that as like 10% the future, 10% the past, 80% being present with God right now. Don't give in to romanticizing the past. We tend to edit all the bad stuff in the past and then play it back as nostalgia. Like, wasn't it great when? It's like, well, I kind of forgot about all the bad days at that job. Don't do that. And don't give in to living five years in the future and missing God's presence in your life, in your work, in the people around you right now. Ever get that feeling that you're waiting for your real life to begin? This is your life. It's my life. And God wants to meet you in it right now. God wants you to be attentive to your life and to him right now in all the highs and lows. And this application comes with a question. Would you have the courage to ask someone close in your life, how present to you am I when we're together? Do I seem distracted? Do I seem to be fantasizing about the past or the future? Do I seem like I'm all there? Do I seem to live in another place or am I right here with you? You might say, well, why, you want me at, why, why should I ask that question? Because how you interact with those closest to you is how you are most likely interacting with God. You're not like some other person when you meet God in prayer or the word. These patterns of behavior are winding all the way through our lives. And so as we work to be present with others and be all there with them, we'll see a great fruitfulness as we're all there with God when we read his word, when we sit in silence, when we rest, when we worship. When Sunday comes, we're ready for it. We've been thinking about getting to worship for a whole day. How present are you with the people you love most? And where could God start to form a new thing to say, hey, simply just be here. Don't get too far ahead. Don't get too far behind. Yes, we live in light of eternity, but that should impact the now, 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 now in a way that our culture tempts us to never do because you only buy things in the future. It's always pulling you towards a better future or an upgrade or a deal that you need to act on right now. And I'm saying you can be present with God, present with those you love most, present with those who don't believe. What if at work, your best way to reach someone was to give your undivided presence and attention to them, ask them thoughtful questions, share your story and share the gospel clearly with them, giving their undivided attention to them. I think it would probably blow their minds. We can be a people who live differently with simple words, simple possessions, and simple presence because God has given us the invitation to simply seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness first and all these things be added unto you. You've been listening to the Citizens Church Podcast. Special thanks to Murphy DX, who recorded our theme music. If you'd like to learn more about Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama, you can visit us on our website at citizensbhn.com or on the usual suspects, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.